Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey, I am doing alright um, and I feel like I'm on a relatively even keel um, mm. because unlike you, I haven't seen Cats. Mm. Yes, I went to see Cats today and will probably... I, I felt like I was in kind of a bit of a funk prior to seeing Cats. And since seeing Cats, it's, you know, what I imagine doing speed is like. It's like my, <laughs> all the synapses are firing. I can't, I can't stop thinking about it. I can't stop tweeting about it. It's something that is really occupying all the crevices of my brain right now. Mm, yeah, the deepest recesses are now full of unnervingly sexualized felines. Mm, yeah, of names like Mungo Jerry, Rumpelteaser, Buster for Jones. Muscavity. I don't know which ones of those you've just made up. All real. Ev- no. Every single one of them. The best, I'm calling bullshit. The best thing about uh, the best thing about cats, um, which is nothing, but the most <laughs> the, the thing that gave me the most kind of macabre enjoyment, enjoyment of cats was as someone who only has kind of like a passing familiarity with the musical i know the song memory i know the plot and i have um you know i kind of know some of the names just from pop culture the thing that uh, you know is kind of really funny is when you watch it all of the songs kind of sound like the person singing it is making it up as they go along because every single one it's like oh this person's going to introduce themselves and it sounds like you've shoved someone in front of a camera having whispered in their ears you're a cat and someone's going to ask you about Old Deuteronomy. And so, like, the first thing they do is just, like, Old Deuteronomy. It's like, it's like that thing of, you know, if you're listening to a comedy improv podcast where someone's just pimping someone into singing and they're stretching out all of the vowel sounds because they're trying to think of what the next line of the song is going to be. And there is that, there is a, a weirdly shambolic energy to the to the movie that you would not expect in something that cost so much and features mm. so many kind of big name actors doing truly embarrassing things in front of a camera mm. yeah is any of it does any of it reach the george galloway levels of celebrity big brother cat <laughs> impersonation because that's every time i think about it that's all i think of yes uh, ian mckellen is definitely the george galloway of our time um mm. in that a lot of the cats like Everyone in the movie kind of exhibits a different level of catitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think is probably the the best way to say it. Like they're all kind of slinky, and they all go mad when Taylor Swift spills catnip on them. But when they're interacting with each other, like some of them are like, "Oh, we're just kind of like human with very theatrical hand movements," and when. Ian McKellen is on. Obviously, he you know he's an older gentleman. He can't maybe move as spryly as some of the other members of the cast. So he just kind of like shuffles around and really, really goes for it in terms of the how catty he is. And that is best exemplified by the fact that his first big scene in the movie has uh, Mr. Mistopheles, the magician cat, 
going into his dressing room at this theatre they're all performing at to get him because he's going to perform a show on the st- before they all you know make the Jellicle choice. And he is just face first in a dish of milk and just like lapping it up. And really, he's just uh, such a delicious ham, is Ian mm. McKellen in this movie. He's really having a lot of fun thinking, well, this is not the movie they'll remember me for, so I can do whatever I like. <laughs> yeah. At this point, it's too late for him to disgrace himself. Exactly, yeah. Uh, unless there's a kind of a U-Tree-style investigation of the making of cats, mm, which yeah. I am calling for. And um, <laughs> there's a petition. <laughs> Link in the description. Um, yeah. No, it's, it is it is a truly baffling movie. I had a great time watching it. <laughs> I was laughing uproariously throughout. Or, or like, because there were there were other people in the, in the theatre who were not enjoying it as much as I was or were not enjoying it in the way that I was. Like, there was one person who was clearly very emotionally caught up in it, particularly uh, the performance of Memory, which is, you know, a very kind of... It's kind of like a classic torch song. Obviously, people are going to have an emotional reaction to it because it's a very sweet song. And there were... The two people sat next to me just were not enjoying it at all. (laughs) And I don't think they took kindly to the fact that I was enjoying it, but, you know, on a different level. And I did hear probably like four or five people say quietly over the course of the movie, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. (laughs) Which is a delightful thing to bear witness to. But and so whenever I was really laughing, and I I did almost leave the theatre when Ian McKellen's bit started because I was laughing so hard, I was more kind of just kind of like jamming my face into my hoodie <laughs> to be kind of like I don't want to I don't want to just kind of rub in how much I'm enjoying this fiasco. Mm, I'm just kind of looking forward to the the Rocky Horror uh, mm. midnight screenings of Cats, where people will, you know, approach the cinema holding huge vats of milk and then mm-hmm. plunging their faces in at the appropriate time. But just yeah. the smell of the milk would just be too much. Yeah, as someone who's worked in a theatre, the, mm. the thought of just the stale milk building up over a couple of days just doesn't bear thinking of. Um, yeah. it, it does have what a lot of good midnight movies have, which is awkward moments of silence that are really good for imagining people kind of like shout, shouting things at the screen. Mm. Yeah. Which is what and you want in a musical. <laughs> yeah, that is really what you want in a musical. Oh, God. So we haven't got much in the way of news this week, but what we do have is about Cats. So <laughs> <laughs> let's yeah. keep going. So Cats came out this weekend. It was um, counter-programming against uh, the film we'll be discussing on and the main topic. And uh, it did not do well. It earned about $6.5 million in the US, which is very poor and behind, you know, the third and fourth weekends of movies that have been out for a little bit. And, you know, it's particularly bad considering it's a you know, kind of very, very well-known musical, been around for, for decades, and is a thing that at least people know. So you think people would at least go and watch it out of curiosity which I think some of the walkouts at my theatre, prob- my screening, probably um, did. They kind of thought, oh, Cats is a thing, let's go see it, and not realising what eldritch horrors they were going to uh, <laughs> going to see as a result. But one of the things about the movie, other than its staggering lack of success, is was the announcement that the movie had shipped with some incomplete special effects, which again mm. is very funny considering it's a movie that was very kind of heavily touted the digital fur technology that they were all using for it. 
And the main point at which the effects were not in place was that uh, Judy Dench, who plays Old Deuteronomy, the aforementioned, her, has human hands throughout the entirety of the movie, including her wedding ring, which is very prominently displayed and, if not removed, does raise weird questions about the world of cats, and such as, who makes the rings for the cats to get married? <laughs> Is it the mice, the tiny mice that are the size of cockroaches and also have human faces? These are questions the movie does not get into, but it released into theatres without finished effects, and so Universal are rushing out replacement prints, or I guess sending files to D uh, DCPs to uh, replace the movie with one that has uh, has the, the the glitches fixed. You know, everyone's joking about it. it's getting a day one patch in mm. in video game terms. And uh, you and I were talking about this beforehand. How this is not an unprecedented thing to occur, but it is something that I, I don't think has necessarily happened on this scale this quickly uh, in recent memory. Mm, yeah, I kind of mentioned to you beforehand that Ghostbusters famously opened at the cinemas without completed special effects shots just because they just could not get it done in time mm. um, and they were kind of banking on the fact they would be a success for them to you know go out and fix it. I'm not sure exactly how far into its run they did replace it but back then not only making prints was very expensive, making kind of 35 mil prints but shipping them was a big mm. big cost for, for it's where distributors were necessary to be a separate part of production um but now in a digital age there was there was kind of people saying last week that tom uh hooper was still working on the film last week you know a few days out from the premiere mm. which is crazy given yeah. that you know when when it came out that jj abrams was working on the force awakens and they locked it like a month before the premiere everyone was all oh, there he's cutting that fine <laughs> um but yeah, this is you know that I've not heard of anyone doing it, you know this this close to the deadline. I mean, it's 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 good to use all of a deadline. It's there mm -hmm. for a reason. Um, but good grief! And the, yeah, like in a in a digital age where, like you say, most of the the the, the things that are screened on are called DCPs. They're just huge video files, essentially. I, you know, I'm sure if you had the bandwidth, you could just download the patch and. It kind of is quite interesting to think about that people can tinker with a film whilst on release. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there are implications of like certification and things like that, I guess. But you couldn't just like sneak a full penetration scene, <laughs> like you know, whilst on release. But that'll yeah, be in would... that'll be in Fight Club twenty forty nine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there are you know implications that you can rush a film out not finished. Mm. Uh, you can you know triple A game it uh, as it were. <laughs> you know, just just plunk it out and fix it later. Yeah, or like uh, Kanye with The Life of Pablo, where released it on uh, on iTunes, and then it was like, oh, by the way, if you listen to it tomorrow, it's going to be a different version of the album because he keeps tinkering with the songs, which really was another case where people were like, what does this mean for like the album as a work of art that you know you're not messing with it and releasing like uh, the. Uh, non Phil Spector version of Let It Be forty years after the after the fact. It's like mm. the album is in people's libraries, and you are going okay. Uh, that album that you were listening to and trying to uh, to kind of like process your thoughts on, uh, it's different now, <laughs> and I'm I'm gonna fix it. I promise. It, you know, it's it's a very 
weird thing. It's it's kind of exciting as well, I guess, in terms of like the the changing face of of art in some respects, and just mainly in the speed of it, because you know, as as well, we were talking beforehand that someone like a Stanley Kubrick was kind of renowned for tinkering with his movies after they'd been released, often. Mm-hmm. Because also, you know, films had different rollouts in, you know, in the olden days, they wouldn't open everywhere all at once. You know, you'd open in a few cities and then go out to others. So it was a little easier for someone like Stanley Kubrick to, you know, release The Shining in a bunch of markets, go and watch it with an audience, kind of sit there and think, OK, I'm, I, I want to make some changes and then release a different cut of the movie in Europe. And that's you know kind of a time consuming process and it's something that's kind of dependent upon the film being successful enough that you would think yeah it's worth us kind of like tinkering with this after release because it's going to be in theaters for a long time whereas this is like cats is not going to be in theaters for a long time and they are already releasing a special edition of it hmm yeah, it's, it is, uh, does set a dangerous precedent, though, especially given how, and I think we'll probably talk about this in the main topic, how beholden studios are to release dates and sticking to them. Mm. And especially given the some of the brouhaha that's gone on behind the scenes, uh, Lucasfilm in the last five years, how they have ended up invariably pushing all of their release dates to you know the absolute latest that it is not inconceivable that in a few years times you will see like i said about triple a games being released knowingly unfinished and then patching them after your opening weekend when you make your money Mm. yeah and as someone who has worked in the games industry during the period when that did become the norm it is it is very strange to think that there used to be a time where you kind of had to release a game and it had to meet certain standards of you know functioning and Mm now those standards are very loose (laughs) and very much kind of like uh we know this has a major problem but we promise it will be fine when the game launches as long as everyone's online uh Mm. if they're not online it's not gonna work so yeah that'd be very funny if it's like oh theaters that only show 35 millimeter prints would be fucked it's just like mm, yeah, they have to send someone from the studio to act out as a puppet show mm-hmm. in, the bit, in the bits that have changed. Yeah, or they could like make that a real selling point. It's like come and see the original broken version of Cats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, that's that's how like um, you know the little rep cinemas are going to survive mm, yeah. by showing all the imperfect versions of the the blockbusters that you, know, you can't see anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, my my main hope is that um, Lars von Trier finally goes back and adds all the effects into Dogville, because mm. that was very that was very embarrassing. They didn't even finish the set. Yeah, <laughs> it was fucking ridiculous. So yeah, so our main topic this week is the new Star Wars movie, Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Now, you and I have talked about Star Wars quite a lot over the 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 course of this podcast. We've kind of tracked the travails of uh, Star Wars under the Disney banner. We kind of gathered together, you know, once every year to discuss the new releases as they have kind of gone on this tear of releasing a Star Wars movie a year to uh, uh, mixed success. Most, mostly, mm-hmm. very, mostly very successful, mostly very well-liked critically. But, uh, you know, this, and, and this is the, the end of that saga, supposedly. You know, this is the ninth film, the one that rounds out this 
sequel trilogy, the one that rounds out the trilogy of trilogies that have been made over the last 42 years. And, uh, you know, kind of comes with a great deal of anticipation, particularly for people like you and I who liked The Last Jedi and who are like, oh, man, you know, like it's going to be really interesting to see how they resolve this story. And uh, I think we would say right at the top what we think of the movie, because I have often actually first off spoilers. <laughs> There's going to be a mm. lot of spoilers. We're going to talk about uh, a lot of the stuff that happens in in the rise of skywalker so if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want it spoiled you know turn this off go and watch the movie and then come back but also you know whenever i post links to our star wars episodes which generally are very popular because star wars is very popular on facebook invariably there's someone who's like hey what did you think of the movie and you're like that's kind of what the podcast is about so mm-hmm. i'm gonna say up at the start for the tldr of it all uh i did not like the rise of skywalker I think it is the weakest of the five movies that Disney have put out under the Star Wars banner. And I would say I think it is the worst of all the nine Star Wars main movies, uh, you know, of the main saga. And, you know, we'll talk about why I think that is over the, the run of it. But that's kind of that's that's kind of me setting down my my standard on what I think of the Rise of Skywalker <laughs> and uh, where the franchise ends up for the moment before they, you know reboot it with new stories in a couple of years Mm -hmm. uh well i loved it it was my favorite (laughs) (laughs) no of course i didn't i mean i i am not gonna say that it's the worst star wars movie because i think you're just upset ed it's very raw (laughs) (laughs) when you've had a chance to watch attack of the clones again or i mean i don't even know if you have you know if we're talking about this properly seen clone wars the movie (laughs) <laughs> because... that's true I'm, I'm saying of the nine i'm not i'm yeah. not including the stuff that doesn't have a, a roman numeral in the title yeah i just i don't want to belittle your feelings but i just <laughs> just just maybe take a second to calm down Ed, and just think about it just go and have five minutes but it is very poor mm. and but i'm i am conflicted about it because i still found myself enjoying it mm in in sections and and often quite in a lot of sections i got lost in the film for reasons we'll get into but only then to be slapped around the face with the proverbial wet fish and and find myself thinking what on earth is happening Mm. and why are they doing this to me yes so let's uh jump into the a little bit of the plot so the movie starts in a special event in Fortnite. Which is mm-hmm. that <laughs> it was announced Not where that I you thought know... we'd be saying this, but you know, there you go. <laughs> but um, that that's that is literally what happens. There was a a Star Wars event tied into Fortnite at the end of the matches or at the end of the event. There was a radio broadcast from Emperor Palpatine, played by Ian McDormand, as he always is, saying that he was back and he was seeking revenge, and that's where the movie starts. The movie starts with an opening crawl saying the dead speak, which is very funny as just a, an opening gambit. And then basically saying, oh yeah, Palpatine's back. Sorry, everyone, if you haven't played Fortnite and don't realize that this is what's happening. And so like the movie kind of goes on from there. Palpatine's the villain again. Kylo Ren is tracking him down and because he sees him as a threat to his power, then Palpatine's like, hey, go kill Rey. And that kind of like sets off the motion. But that that to me, I think was that was kind of like one of the things that was like the 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 flashing warning signal of this is not off to a great start was the the crawl 
just kind of which usually is more kind of like a quick catch-up of just kind of re-establishing things usually along the variety of well the war is still going on and this is where everyone is currently this one was like oh here is a universe redefining change in the plot that is going to completely refocus what this movie about is about and kind of about what the entire trilogy is about and it's in a paragraph at the start of the movie and then like the fortnight of it all was also just like super weird and funny and crass but that that to me was like oh this doesn't seem like a good choice and then the opening like five minutes of the movie is this really disorientating montage of kylo ren going around killing people on a planet that isn't named but if you read the book is established to mustafar which is where darth vader lived and where he was like injured but is also not explained in the movie so it's not entirely clear what he's doing why he's gone there and who he's killing and then why that then leads him to palpatine there's this like immediately you're kind of discombobulated there's this sense of like I don't know what's happening. I don't know why anyone's doing anything. And also, the stuff I don't understand is happening very fast. Hmm. Yeah. Now, this is where our our opinions are going to differ. Okay. (laughs) Because I liked The Crawl, and Mm. I liked the fact that it started with the words, the dead speak. That is fun. I do like that as it's very pulpy. Yeah, and that's that's it. I felt like, and I will be skipping ahead, I will be uh, light speed skipping ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in the I felt like the opening 35-40 minutes of The Rise of Skywalker did that thing where like it sets up a very pulpy crawl and mm-hmm. then sets off on a very fast swashbuckling adventure with our heroes and I got very much swept up in that until something happens and then all the the choice to move that quickly then starts to you realize that if you're going to if you're going to move that quickly through plot and there was a lot of plot mm. you are going to have to resolve a lot of things very quickly as well which is when you are seeing things set up and then resolved in 10 minute <laughs> um cycles after about the half an hour mark um the point at which we'll get into in a second and then all of a sudden the wheels fully come off the film Mm-hmm. And the 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 inciting incident for that for me is when Ray accidentally kills Chewie, <laughs> and then ten minutes later, it's 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 like one of the cheapest gags. Well, not even <laughs> a gag, like the cheapest cheapest reveal that it's not like he's not dead, but like yeah, they have to do that and then tell us he's not dead in ten minutes because they haven't got time to pay that off anymore. They've got to tell us that Poe Dameron is hated by this woman, Zori Bliss, Zori Bliss, and then she's going to give him everything she's got to get off the planet for no reason. In 10 minutes, we're going to have C-3PO's memory wiped in quite an emotional scene and then restored 10 minutes later because mm. we don't have time <laughs> to leave these these threads hanging to let you do because we've already we've started off going so fast and like i say i was swept up in the opening and i was swept up in the kind of the daring do swept up in the kind of like indiana jonesy like we need to go this and do this and do this and do this and then all of a sudden i was like oh shit this is this is a car crash <laughs> this is this is going quite badly um mm. and then and and i think that is an intentional thing that abrams has done to move so quickly that you just don't stop and think about any of those things because it's quite a popular thing in the online discourse and the, the the film discourse now to talk about plot holes. Right. Because 
when someone doesn't agree with something in a film, they try and pick it apart like a plot hole because that's the limit of their criticism. <laughs> they can't actually apply any critical thought uh, or theory to what they're witnessing. They just say, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would anyone do that? And you can mm-hmm. do that to all of Star Wars. But mm-hmm. the reason that this one moves at such an incredible pace because you can't stop and say, oh, hang on, that doesn't really make that much sense. Oh, no, we're going. <laughs> we're going. Okay, we're on another planet. I think someone yeah. pointed out to me that like most Star Wars movies take place um, over about three locations, like three yeah. planets or whatever. And I mean, he goes to three in the the light speed skipping thing, which is about 45 seconds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, like I say, for a film that, and we'll get into this, one of the problem, one of the big problems of the film is how just kind of cloying the fan services. Um, yeah. To have the opening scene of the movie um, take place not only on Mustafar, but he actually, Kylo Ren kills all these dudes and actually recovers this Sith MacGuffin that he's found. That is actually in the ruins of Darth Vader's castle. Yeah. Now, this film has got so much fan service in it, they had to cut that bit out. <laughs> they had to cut out a moment where Kylo Ren walks into Darth Vader's ruined castle and picks up a little MacGuffin because that would have been a moment that fans would have been like, ooh, amazing. But like, it was just going so quickly that, I mean, that, that whole sequence, including a fight scene and a big key moment of plot that sets the, the rest of the film in motion, what, like a minute? Yeah. Yeah, that's that was the main thing for me. Is like it does cram all of this stuff really. It, what what feels like should be like a ten minute stretch of the movie. <laughs> like you should have like okay, Kylo shows up on this planet. They establish that it's Mustafar. That he's going to grip Vader's thing, and then him finding the wayfinder. Then it should cut to you know Ray, uh, Finn, and Poe flying the Falcon, doing the 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 skipping stuff, which I did enjoy that part and i particularly enjoyed once they were back together with ray and they were on that planet at space glastonbury Mm -hmm. and you know like lando was there like that section of the movie was kind of the part that i liked the most because it kind of felt as if okay you're staying in one place for a little for a minute you are following these characters that i like and i have enjoyed following over the course of these movies and you know they're having a bit of an adventure together that's good but like that opening of like you know what should be something that establishes a sense of of mystery of kylo going off and doing something and looking for something and then you know in a movie that didn't announce that palpatine was back at the start of the movie and also in Fortnite, um <laughs> it would you would like have him go into a mysterious location because like the crawler would say a mysterious voice beckons Kylo Ren to, you know, Mustafar. You know, hmm. it would it, it would kind of have this like, oh, he's following breadcrumbs to kind of go somewhere, and then halfway through, you know, he sees, oh, it's Palpatine, and he's somehow alive, and he's got loads of Snokes in a jar. Um, <laughs> snokes and... on a plane. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mace Windu had had it up to here with <laughs> all these motherfucking Snokes. Yeah, yeah. but. Yeah, that that's kind of like the main thing to, for me is it feels like a movie that is rushing along. And, and you and I have talked in the past about the opening of Return of the Jedi, which, you know, if, if we're talking about how, you know, The Force Awakens very consciously modelled on A New Hope in a lot of ways. The Last Jedi, you know, is kind of like subverting a lot of things and kind of putting the, the characters through trials in the same way that Empire Strikes Back did. And, you know, in my opinion, did it brilliantly. And this one, you know, if it's following the 
uh, Return of the Jedi model, Return of the Jedi also has a very rushed opening that doesn't really make a huge amount of sense. We've talked about how like the the plan that Luke has is like ridiculous and doesn't really kind of hold together under the tiniest bit of scrutiny, but because it's moving along at kind of a nice pace and you know it's carrying you along and you're happy to see all of your space friends together again, that you kind of like go along with it and it more or less gets away with it whereas i kind of feel as if you know rise of skywalker doesn't quite get there because it's like the level to which it is rushed is like inf- uh, infinitely more than return of the jedi which at least stays in one location for its mm. kind of rushed opening 25 minutes yeah and that it is 25 minutes ed it's yeah. not like the the equivalent in rise of skywalker is you know like 10 seconds or whatever plus it's like this is the first the first star wars movie i can remember that has just so much plot mm. and we talked about we talk about plot and story um the story is ray needs to find emperor palpatine but yeah. to do that she has to um decrypt this transmission um then she has to go to a planet to find a sith hunter's ship which on the ship there's a knife on the knife there's a clue C-3PO has to translate the clue. He can't get the clue. They have to go to a planet. The planet, they have to get past uh, like Poe's ex-lover to speak to the little Babu Frick fella who then has to wipe the memory to get the thing to... That's a lot to happen, like, mm. to just get from A to B. And you don't want the journey from A to B to be simple because it's boring. The shortest point is... is the shortest route is, is, is a straight line between two points. You don't want that. But you don't want it to just be like this kind of mindless zigzagging all over the place. Um, especially yeah. when, like, the actual reveal of what the dagger does to reveal the location <laughs> of the vault is so ridiculous. They have, yeah. <laughs> like, even when they, they got it out in the cinema, and I was like, oh, this is going to line up. It's going to line up. It's going to be cool, like kind of Indiana Jonesy. And then it does that, and you're like, hang on. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, just what? Imagining, imagining a Sith standing there looking at the wreckage of the Death Star and having to, like, etch it in. And then, like, losing the light. It's like, oh, fuck, got to come back tomorrow. Mm. <laughs> got to stay on Endor for another two weeks till yeah. I can finish this thing. Yeah, it's, it is that that reveal of what the knife was for, which is it has an extra handle you pull out and you just hold it up against the wreckage of the Death Star, was really, yeah, it was just really weird, really disappointing and deflating. Like, mm. I don't know, you want the knife to go into something to open up a vault you know like some something like that you would think oh that that's kind of fun and interesting um mm. and like when they do something like that in the goonies or like raiders <laughs> of the lost ark they're lining up using like a medallion like three immovable landmarks not a decaying man-made shape in the famously like continually moving sea <laughs> Mm, yeah, it's it's very strange. And to, to to also talk about like this the three PO plot line, I also thought like it was really weird how rushed that was because you know like the the idea I think is quite cool. The idea of like oh he can translate it, but it's a forbidden language, so he can't say what it says. Like that's that's kind of a cool idea. I like the idea of then they're putting this choice of like, well, the only way we can do this is if we reset you and then you lose all your memories. You know, oh that's kind of a tragic choice what you know not to kind of sit here and rewrite the movie what i kind of thought would have been better would be if like they could have reset him at any time and then they have to go to babu thrick because they say oh he could reset him and it wouldn't lose anything and we would still keep our friend and we would get the information but then 
he they get to Babu Frick and he's like, yeah, sorry, there's actually no way for me to do this. You're you're gonna have to like lose your friend because his memory's gonna be wiped in order for you to save the world. And then you know that would be a genuine kind of like tragic choice, something they have tried to avoid happening. Mm. But th- as opposed to <laughs> going into it thinking, yeah, we're just gonna reset him, <laughs> and that's yeah. it. I think you've summed up there what one of the principal problems is with the film is that it gives us, on occasion, really interesting ideas mm. and then pays them off and resolves them in the most boring way possible. Yeah, the the other one with the Chewy not really being dead. Mm-hmm. Like, that was really interesting to me because it reminded me of... There's a book in Terry Brooks's Shannara, or Shannara, I think is the actual pronunciation, but I always pronounce it Shannara because I'm posh. Shannara series of fantasy novels called The Science of Shannara, where... At the end of the book, one of the kind of like characters of this kind of like legendary family of magic users believes that he has killed his own brother because he encounters this wraith that looks like his brother. So he and he uses his magic kind of in a in a moment of kind of like uncontrolled panic and kills what he thinks is his brother. And then he doesn't find out that he hasn't killed his brother, that he just killed like a demon who looked like his brother until four books later. Oh, <laughs> like, wow. He is tortured by the thought that he could have accidentally killed, you know, the most important person in his life. And then here, that was what it reminded me of when they revealed that Chewie was still alive. And then, like, it's fine letting us know that he's still alive because that's, that's the, you know, that's the basic idea of suspense of us thinking, oh, you know, we know this thing the characters don't know, and maybe that's going to, you know, cause the character a great deal of pain, we can see that happen. But, like, like Ray has one scene where she's a little perturbed by it, mm-hmm. and then they find out, oh, Chewie's still alive. <laughs> and it's like, that. that's kind of, like, the where it fails the payoff. It's like, if she thinks that she's killed Chewie, and then she doesn't find out, like, an hour later that he's still alive then, you know, there's some potential there. But instead it's like, oh, I think I've killed this person who's deeply important to me, but I haven't. I found out like two scenes later, everything's fine. Mm. But it, it, it's, it was potentially a very interesting situation that mm. our protagonist, our hero, can't control her powers and kills yeah. one of the most beloved characters in Star Wars. And if they would had not bottled it, and gone through with that that would be an incredibly bold and interesting choice to have made but then they just walk it back you know within 10 minutes of it happening and it just becomes a very very cheap kind of like twist but then also she realizes he's alive when she's on kajimi the planet and she looks up into the atmosphere at the star destroyer and says oh chewie's on that ship but then <laughs> didn't realize he wasn't on the ship that was 50 meters away <laughs> Yeah, that is weird. Not <laughs> to get really too much into plot holes. Plot but holes, yeah. but yeah, it's just it, like when when you're going to resolve something like that, you know, if you're going to pull the wool over someone's eyes, it needs you need to do it pretty artfully, <laughs> or then mm. you just look silly and they just feel like a mug. Yeah, I think for me, the word that kind of comes back often in thinking about the choices the movie makes or the choose the choices it fails to make mm-hmm. is um, cowardly. <laughs> Like, yeah. it does feel like a movie that is afraid of making choices that will upset people because the mm-hmm. previous movie made choices that upset people for dumb reasons. But they don't want to upset people, but they also don't want people to be upset whilst they're watching the movie, which is why they're like, oh, these things that are potentially very interesting, if, like, maintained over a long period of time, 
will be resolved like in five or ten minutes like we don't want the audience at any point to feel uncomfortable with the thought that ray killed chewbacca which is you know a thing that would be very uncomfortable for a fan of star wars to have to deal with particularly someone who is who likes ray and likes what the character you know has gone through for her to have made this like potentially devastating fatal error you know being forced to sit in that would be dramatically very interesting instead they're just kind of like no it's fine we have him. Yep. Don't Richard worry, guys. Grant's got him. Yeah. And so, I mean, we're kind of leaning now towards what, and you've used the word cowardly. We've used, we've talked about poor decisions made for the wrong reasons. So we probably need to get to the central thing, which is the reveal that Ray is Emperor Palpatine's granddaughter. Mm, which, yeah. which, and, you know, regular listeners will know that, you know, one of, one of, we liked The Last Jedi, and I don't want this mm. episode to just be us talking about how much we like The Last Jedi. That'd be more fun than having to talk about how bad this one is. But the idea that they established at the end of The Last Jedi, which is that Rey is, her parents are no one, she's not from a famous bloodline, and then the message being kind of talked through that film and delivered in the the kind of the final image of the movie of Broom Boy looking up at the sun, mm. you know, he has the force, that anyone can have the force. And that's potentially uh, having spent a lot of time in a universe where the powerful people all seem to be related to the same small group of people it was incredibly interesting to suddenly be told hey no worries we can all be um heroes we can all do everything it doesn't matter where you come from or what you are it's not who your dad is or like you know who your grandparents are it is inside you and the, the ability and the capacity to to change the world and and be a force for good in the world with a capital f is uh, limitless and anyone mm. can be that. Then to have that walked back and just say, yeah, it's, it's Palpatine's granddaughter. Like, I mean, that opens a lot of weird and awful, awkward, like, thoughts and images <laughs> in my head that I don't want to think about. Just thinking about when that child would have been conceived and what state Palpatine was in at that time. It's just, mm. it's just, a, it's not an image I want to see Palpatine on the job. But um, I, it, it seems like when, the Force Awakens came out and the internet and Reddit and things like that were awash with all these theories, all these like Snoke theories and fan theories, who's raised parents and everything. It is genuinely like they just picked the most fucking boring, predictable, cowardly, tiresome choice to all of that. Like, or no, none of the, like, was she Obi-Wan Kenobi's granddaughter? Was she Palpatine's granddaughter? Was she Luke, Leia or Han's kid? None of those things are satisfactory. None of those things were ever satisfactory. They were all really boring. And, like, they just went with it. And, like, you, you, they've taken all the interesting things from the previous movie and just been like, okay, we'll just ignore those and we'll just go with this. And And I will say this to finish off this little segment, that there's nothing more boring than a secret bloodline reveal. Mm. And especially not when four pr films previous in the same saga you're doing in, you had one of the very best <laughs> secret bloodline reveals. You're not going to top that. Yeah. And just on a formal level, they really don't. Like, the way the information is revealed is really tossed off. Mm -hmm. It feels like this... Yeah, we'll probably get into this in a moment, but it feels like a reshoot because yep. uh, you don't see... On helmets on and yeah. there's one of those things where you think oh i guess uh adam driver did not want to come back for this scene 
he's on it's very flatly shot it's very flatly delivered it's very much like when you when you compare it to the reveal in empire strikes back you know it's at the end of this long battle the between uh luke and, and vader luke's in this position of tremendous weakness you know he's lost his hand he's holding on he's you know dangling over a perilously massive hole and he is defiant he's angry he's hurt and the way in which the information is revealed is you know at the end of this long dialogue and it's really powerful because it's the one thing the character does not want to hear and the one thing the audience doesn't want to hear because it completely complicates everything mm-hmm. and if you compare it to the last jedi it's like that is the one thing ray doesn't want to hear she doesn't want to hear that she's not special she doesn't want to hear that she there is no secret behind it all because she is someone who has no kind of real sense of identity of herself you know she wants some sense of closure and knowing that she doesn't come from some special like bloodline or whatever means that she is just as confused as she ever was and again it comes at the end of this huge like one of the best lightsaber fight in the whole saga and after you know it's like this real there's this like tremendous tension between the two characters that's been building over the whole the course of the whole movie and here it literally is like oh she's going somewhere kylo interrupts her he just tells her flat out, no, by the way, your, your Palpatine's daughter, uh, granddaughter. And it just like, it clears everything up. It makes everything so simple. It doesn't mm. make things interesting at all. It's just kind of like, uh, like you say, it's like they took the most boring of the possible fan theories and just like, yeah, we'll go with that one. Sure. Like, it's the, like what other options do we have? Like, ah, she could be a Kenobi, I guess. Uh, someone evil to give her a bit of conflict. You know, just not, not nothing too fascinating in terms of conflict, but a bit of conflict. Yeah, let's make her Palpatine's granddaughter. On the plus side, mm. you know, got to see Jodie Comer in a Star Wars movie, so that's something. Yeah. But there was the also the idea that we get later on with Luke's Force Ghost scene, which is something I'd like to un- <laughs> unpack later. He kind of just says, oh, yeah, I knew. <laughs> Leia knew. Oh well, thanks for the fucking information. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. That is one of those things that's just like it. It's just not supported by anything in the previous. It's clearly a late addition to this one, yeah. which doesn't really chime with how anyone was playing over them. Like they were concerned because she's a very powerful force user, but not like concerned for them. Oh yeah, you're the progeny of the most evil person who's ever existed. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that was... I think that is my biggest problem with the film. Not only because it doesn't make sense in a story or kind of logic sense, but also the fact that it feels like it was a choice made to appease the wrong people Mm. for the wrong reasons and kind of was a massive kind of fuck you to... The previous film, which seems to be being punished for having a small group of people who didn't particularly care for it, um, but who kind of tell us about it incredibly loudly. But also the fact of like the message there is, oh, don't try and do anything too interesting. Mm. Um, and I mean, that that was one of the, the really kind of like uncomfortable things about the release of this film in the press tour running up to it just how many of the cast and crew seem to like throw last jedi under the bus yeah like uh jj said you know people don't go to star wars to be told 
you know, things don't matter and you don't want to take a meta look at Star Wars. You want to be entertained. I mean, you know, Boyega made some comments. But the, the thing is, is that the J.J. Abrahams followed making those comments with making a film that means absolutely nothing um, yeah. by essentially just pumping people's memories through a Star Wars algorithm and just, you know, sticking it in there, whether it's meaningless or not, and stripping characters, events and, and moments of any actual meaning beyond echoing like mild nostalgia and it also it like that determination to undo things from the previous movie or to just kind of it's essentially be like okay we're going to pretend the last jedi didn't happen in some respects we're going to keep the force conversation stuff but mm. for the most part we're going to and, and we're going to really not use kelly marie tran at all because uh, people online are awful like that he's essentially being like, okay, I'm going to just kind of like cram two movies worth in. <laughs> like I'm going to do my trilogy over the course of two movies. And like that really does add to the sense of things being so crammed and so busy. And it really does hurt the movie overall that so much of the, the you know, the precious real estate of the last quote unquote Star Wars movie is devoted to being like, what from the last movie can we just kind of write out of existence? Mm. but it seems to have been done so petulantly and especially yeah. with like you allude, alluded to the treatment of the character of Rose played by um, Kelly Marie Tran we are we have a really horrible scene where Finn just friend zones her by putting his hand on her shoulder and says mm. last chance want to come with and she says no I've got to research something and stay yeah. behind and then they go off on their adventure we forget about it but then he meets another character who rides space horses which is something yeah. that rose is famous for um <laughs> and hacks into kind of like first order tech which is like hang on there's a character that already exists that you could have done yeah. this with then they they add a character played by dominic monaghan for no reason, who delivers mm. lines that could have already been, or like he delivers lines and performs a function that Rose or Lieutenant Connix could have done. Uh, Billy Lord's character, who didn't mm. seem to have much to do in this film, they seem to add characters to take away from Rose. They basically just benched her and, you know, kept a very interesting character on the sidelines to seemingly appease the neckbeards. And yeah. that is a super upsetting thing to know is endorsed by Disney mm. or endorsed by uh, Lucasfilm who have spent so long and, you know, trying to be progressive. And, you know, in, in, in the, the eyes of a lot of the neckbeards, like they're too progressive. They're forcing this agenda on, on people too much. So for Disney to just turn around and do that, just yeah, it just it's just really really sucks yeah that is that was definitely one of the things every time she showed up the worst thing was every time she was on screen i thought man i just know there's like a certain segment of the audience who's just furious that she's getting this much screen time mm. like you will you will never appease that people all you have done is like really do a disservice to a good actress who did a good job in the previous movie was hated for you know, I'm there. Are, I'm. I don't want to tar everyone who dislikes the Last Jedi as being, you know, kind of a racist, a misogynist, or anything like that. There are there are definitely people out there who 
dislike the character of Rose for perfectly legitimate reason. There are people who dislike those movies for perfectly legitimate reason. But they are not the really loud ones who are like who have forced Disney to do this. Mm. People who like did just didn't like Rose because they were like, ah, you know, I didn't like the casino bit on uh on Canto by or anything. Like they weren't the ones who were just like who forced her off of social media. They mm. aren't the people who undoubtedly were just kind of like atting Kathy Kennedy and anyone who had was involved with it with the, the the films for years just kind of constantly complaining about it and who probably made them think you know it's not worth our effort to kind of keep her a central part of the story we're just going to have her in it because contractually she has to be in the movie but we're going to reduce her presence to like an absolute minimum and there's a lot of like behind the scenes stuff and production stuff about this movie that really sucks that is mm-hmm. the one that I find the most just kind of like the most really horrible because she does seem like a truly lovely person <laughs> who mm. got cast in a big movie and was good in it and like her life has been made worse as a result. Mm, yeah, and it is in this film they you know went out of their way to give Carrie Fisher more respect and she's fucking dead. Mm. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. like the the I mean, that is something we need to talk about as well. Like, to J.J. Abrams' defense, he was dealt a shit hand Mm -hmm. by the fact that the entire project from the off, I think, from when they were planning this out loosely as three movies, the third movie was always supposed to be, from all reports, about Leia and Ben, essentially. Yeah. And that is something that would have been quite interesting, but... Unfortunately, Carrie Fisher passed away when before the second film had come out, um, yeah. which is going to derail it uh, to a certain degree. I think people, a lot of people say that J.J. Um, Abrahams was dealt a shit hand by the fact that Ryan Johnson painted him into a corner somewhat by, you know, killing off um, Snoke and by, you know, destroying the resistance down to one ship full of people but do you know what if you are a you know alleged master storyteller and um film director and you can't make a central villain out of the most interesting star wars villain they've ever seen in kylo ren then i'm not really interested in what you've got to say in the first place but um the carrie fisher thing like the way it worked using unused footage from deleted scenes doesn't work particularly well because mm. those unused and deleted scenes were probably unused and deleted for a reason. Yeah. Um, they're not good. They don't make a lot of sense. They don't form an organic conversation the way they would. You're left wondering why Carrie Fisher isn't saying the thing that you want her to say. Mm. Um, and like honestly, she's a huge iconic part of Star Wars, one of the most beloved characters um ever you know it's very difficult to think of star wars without her she is what is she embodies what is so important to people about these films and this saga and this this thing but like i honestly think that killing the character off off screen between films would have been more respectful than what they did yeah um you said there that you know people think that ryan johnson painted jj abrams into a corner i would say he gave him a blank canvas because (laughs) he really did he literally like he got rid of the main villain that you know had been established but who really wasn't that interesting clearly wasn't that important to the overall story in a major way because even from the first movie it's like oh kylo's the interesting one Mm -hmm. and 
Ryan Johnson built on that. He made him more more conflicted. He made he really kind of emphasized that he was clearly setting up like, oh, if I was making this movie, Kylo's going to be the main villain. It's going to be about them trying to redeem him, and that's going to be the point of the movie. It seems it's like okay, this is not a difficult leap for anyone to make. So to be kind of like, yeah, he's going to get redeemed, but he's kind of going to be halfway in the movie, and then he's going to kind of be sat on a rock in the sea for a while while mm-hmm. he just kind of thinks about how he's been redeemed uh, is is kind of strange and a weird choice. It really just feels as if, you know, like, Ryan Johnson didn't really... Like, he he, he got everyone back together. Like, he was given... He, Ryan Johnson's handoff to J.J. Abrams was way better than the one that J.J. Abrams handed off to Ryan Johnson. Because mm. Ryan Johnson got him. It's like, okay, everyone's kind of scattered to the winds... Ray's uh, off with Luke, who's on an island on his own for some reason. I've got to kind of explain that. You know, like, the the, the First Order's descendant, they've blown up the Republic, you know. Like, he had a lot of stuff that he kind of had to deal with, and, you know, he, for, for my money, he handled it very elegantly in kind of how he incorporated all of those factors and kind of made a coherent movie. Like, he left J.J. Abrams, I think, with, like, just like uh, limitless options and maybe that's the problem is like you know like when you're presented with limitless options it's hard to choose one and so you just put all of them in the movie mm. but yeah it like, like I'm, I'm totally in agreement that it doesn't feel to me like an excuse that for some reason the last jedi left him with nowhere to go like it left him with anywhere to go and yeah, like all of the layer scenes, I've I've got in my notes. I've just written the phrase uh, "Livia Organa" <laughs> because <laughs> ev- every scene that she's in feels like that scene from The Sopranos where they had to take like what little footage they had of Nancy March and and like awkwardly CGI her for her final scenes. It's mm. all like you say, like none of the conversations really feel organic or make sense. It's not clear why she's training Ray or why they're on that planet. Ma- mainly, they just have her looking pensive and mm-hmm. kind of worried and asking for reports or whatever it's like it's it's just really weird and awkward and there were i i was you know in terms of things being dealt a bad hand i i don't think that jj abrams had any good options for what to do with leia you know the option of writing her off in the crawl and just mentioning it like you know every theater in the the country would be like the the premiere of Large Door. Everyone would be just throwing ink at the screen and chairs. It'd just be an absolute nightmare. So that's not a great one. It's an option that yeah, I personally think artistically probably would have worked and, you know, kind of freed you up. Or recasting the part with, you know, another actor, to, to, you know, kind of like in a limited part also could work. But again, the fans wouldn't accept it. Mm-hmm. So he didn't really have any good options, but he probably chose the one that was the most awkward and difficult to work with in terms of trying to make a good coherent story Mm. and for all the idiots who complained about none of the characters spending sufficient grieving time in the last jedi when they find out that you know their other people are dead like hands dead or whatever we do get a good scene of chewy just screaming right relentlessly (laughs) (laughs) so so just to say like that is an appropriate amount of grief for mm. a, a character of Leia standard, which is, you know, that was another thing where, like, I was like, this should be an emotional moment, but I'm yeah. rolling my eyes <laughs> because I know why that's been put in there. 
Yeah, there's just a, there's this real sense, and you know, maybe it's just you know we've been poisoned by just the discourse around Star Star Wars that we're just going to have these things rolling around our head of like, oh, this is to appease those people, this is to appease those people, but like, I still feel it it just plays weirdly from a, a drama point of view that he's just so distraught in that mm-hmm. moment, and that it lasts, it kind of holds on it for a really awkward amount of time. Like, for a movie that is constantly jumping around, for it mm. to be in that moment where it's hard to wring a huge amount of emotional feeling from, you know, a guy in a suit falling down and just kind of, like, screaming. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Also, just in terms of, you know, J. James took over partway through production. You know, Colin Trevorrow famously was meant to direct the movie and then was fired after The Book of Henry came out. Um <laughs> Not entirely, it's, I don't think it's ever been entirely like said out loud that, yeah, we saw that movie and we decided he doesn't get to make Star Wars. But like, it's kind of hard not to draw those lines, you know, to kind of tie those bits of red string on the, the cork board um, of he gets hired to make a Star Wars, his other movie comes out, he doesn't make a Star Wars, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's not hard to kind of, you know, make that equation work. Mm. Um I think and I so think the, yeah. the 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 most likely just to kind of I do think that's true, yeah. um, but like I do as well. Um, I'm just saying it's it's never been officially confirmed. Yeah, but I mean I think the problems that they had was that their version of the film was so centered around Leia that mm. they just never managed to make it work with how they tried to fix it. Yeah, and Abrams was basically called in and just said you need to just fix this because they i mean they got uh jack thorne in to do a draft um and that wasn't particularly working and yeah they never apparently cracked it and then someone saw book of henry and that was the final straw yeah and then they got chris terrio the writer of widely beloved and in no way troubled movie justice league yeah the oscar-winning writer of justice league yeah god did he Mm. win for argo i get the feeling he did he did yeah yeah, that was <laughs> wow. What a what a what a journey he's been on over the last seven years. Hmm. As have we all. What what stuff worked for you? Um, I, I've obviously been very negative, um, mm-hmm. but um, I'll just talk a little bit about some of the things that that I like. I liked the turn they gave for Hooks, where at the start of the movie they established that there's a spy in the First Order that they've been working with. Halfway through the movie, it looks like a bunch of stormtroopers are going to kill uh, Poe, Finn, and Chewie. And then you hear Blaster fire off screen and suddenly Hux is like, I'm the spy! Mm-hmm. Which I, I like because his motivations are perfectly in keeping with the what we have seen of the character, which is that he is someone with no ideology, no belief <laughs> in anything, someone who just is really angry at his boss. <laughs> He's mm-hmm. really angry that Kylo Ren has supplanted his place that he has just humiliated him over the particularly over the course of the last jedi and it's just kind of like his literal motivation motivation is i don't care if you win i just want kylo ren to lose and it's mm. like you know what i believe that you are just such a petty arsehole that mm. you would you would do this uh but again it's kind of marred by the thing that mars the whole movie which is like he is then killed for being a spy the next time he's on screen Mm, Uh, which happens like five minutes later so the character of Hux obviously in the first film is is basically kind of pound shop Hitler yeah Um, in the second film 
is re- reduced pretty much to comic relief, which mm. a lot of people have a problem with, but I don't because he's a Nazi. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's okay. I don't mind him being made a buffoon of, especially when you have a much better villain. And don't forget that in The Last Jedi, he is standing over Kylo Ren at some point, about to pull his gun out and shoot him yeah. um, to kill him off. Like his character is pretty much every disgruntled, bitter middle manager you've ever worked with who will happily throw anyone under the bus to just get one up on that other person, um, whatever it costs. And I liked the fact that he was revealed as the spy, even though it was telegraphed quite badly when he, as soon as he said, I'd like to do this myself, I knew yeah. it was coming. But yeah. the, it was sold by the fact that when he says it, there, the reaction of Finn and Poe is really funny, yeah, um, and that that works. Like like Poe's like, I knew it, but then like you say, like within ten minutes, we're done. It's gone. Like and yeah. Richard E. Grant, a man who really is, I think, probably born to play a Imperial officer, mm-hmm. um, and I've been dying to see him in Star Wars ever since the. Uh, brilliant YouTube video with R2-D2 and C-3PO dubbed over with the dialogue from Withman and I. Um, and yeah, but like like the whole thing is just so condensed. Like the idea of Hux being a spy is interesting, but it is paid off in the most boring way possible. As in, we've yeah. done it, it's moved the plot on, we're done with it, kill him off, fine. Let's move on. Which is really, a, that's part of a whole sequence where you have also seen the uh, Millennium Falcon towed using cables uh, to a Star Destroyer for reasons that is only there to allow them to escape. Is that, is that right? Mm. Like, <laughs> why did you blow it up or they'll leave it? Like, what were they bringing it back for? And then right in the middle of that bit is when, you know, the um, by no means dubbed over by a sound alike reveal that the Ray is Palpatine's daughter is given in the, in the hangar. Um, mm. So that bit does not particularly cover itself in joy, but you did ask me like originally what worked for me and what worked for me is I, I did like the, the moving on of the force connections, the uh, force mm. times as they are called um, kind of <laughs> force powered face times. Um, yeah. um, and I liked the idea that, you know, in, in the last Jedi, when the connection was tenuous, you know, Kylo would get like the raindrops on his hand and now they can kind of cross over physically into with those things and they do a cool things where they're having the fight and you know he cuts the bag of beans and it spills in the location they're in and there's mm. a kind of very cool stuff there and I liked that and it gives us one of my favorite moments in the entire film in at the end when uh Ray passes in the lightsaber um, yeah. and he fights the Knights of Ren and Kylo does this kind of like ha this little kind of shrug, which is like this kind of like ta-da um, bit of physical business, which I thought is really, really funny. And that is like the, the the actual sight of seeing Adam Driver being able to do anything with a degree of levity in the film was quite nice. Mm, um, yes. I like the fact that Finn is uh, force sensitive. Uh, yes. He's revealed to be force sensitive because when I saw The Force Awakens, I actually thought that the the way that the um, whole trilogy was going is that we would find out by the end that Ray, Finn, and Poe were the people that the Force had awakened in. Mm. And that was where I thought it was going. And whilst it then didn't get to be about that, it was nice to see Finn kind of being that cipher of, of, of that idea that I thought was quite nice. What else did I like? Oh, that's a great question. Um, uh, I'll say also in terms of the you were talking about Kylo um, I really enjoyed him jumping onto the chain and just going 
Ow. <laughs> That's the only line of dialogue he has in the last 45 minutes of the film. So wow. after, after throwing his lightsaber into the sea, he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't say anything. Wow, to any I character haven't... that he all he says is ow and that's it yeah wow that's crazy but that that is like like they like say i do like that we do get to spend a bit of time with ben solo and mm-hmm. that that bit i like i also i really like even though you know it can't it can't happen because carrie fisher died but the scene with han solo is like the memory that he's seeing which is clearly mm. meant to be leia yeah. Even though it's clearly meant to be that should be layer, it doesn't make sense that he's just talking to his memory. But it's I found that really sweet, really affecting because you know Han Harrison Ford is like doing an, a lovely little bit of performance in there of like his last bit of you know service for Star Wars, presumably of being like I'm just going to show up, I'm just going to be a lovely supporting dad for him. And Adam Drive is great in that moment. I love that he doesn't say I love you, but uh, Han just says, I know back to him. That's just, that's the kind of fan service I like, where it's just kind of like, you know what, this is kind of serving the moment nicely. Mm-hmm. And it pays back, you know, to to calls back to kind of like a great moment in the trilogy. I did think like there was a lot of good stuff with Adam Driver in the like the last, the last part of the movie that, you know, d- didn't really seem connected to anything else. Mm, yeah. I tell you one, another thing I didn't like, um, <laughs> which was we were treated to, the internet's um, disdain when the Knights of Ren were left out of the second film, and yeah. Ryan Johnson said uh, they're not in my story. I, my story is about something else. Like maybe in the third one they'll come back, but there's no room for them in this story, and there's already a lot going on. And people were up in arms because they were like, "We saw them for a few seconds in the trailer for the first film, and they look cool. We want mm-hmm. to see them do something. We want this." And then they do turn up, and they fit beautifully into that long Star Wars tradition of people who look cool and do <laughs> fuck all and they they join the ranks it's a crowded crowded marketplace of uh, Darth Maul, Boba Fett, Captain Phasma and now the Knights of Ren of some guys who just hang around looking badass and literally just a shit <laughs> they don't do any, none of those people if you added up what any of those people any of those characters added to the Star Wars saga you'd have, at best, a thimble of, like, of achievements. What do you, like, Boba Fett, like, hides in the garbage and then falls down a <laughs> hole. He does nothing. Phasma falls down a hole. Maul, this, that's the thing, Maul falls down a hole as well. So maybe the, Ren, the, the Knights of Ren don't fall down any holes. That's probably mm-hmm. the only thing they don't do to carry on this rich tradition. But, yeah, they, they were a nothing. Um, yeah. There was a, a chimp. <laughs> there, was a, there was a space chimp who put together Kylo's mask, which again was another middle finger I felt up at, you know, the previous film. That's a really interesting symbolic idea and scene where Kylo Ren is humiliated by both Hux and Snoke in the scene. He's called, a you know, a boy in a mask. He takes the mask off, which he thinks makes him look like Vader, makes him look scary, and smashes it to pieces. And you're like, oh, it, the character is moving on. And then we get mm. to the, the Rise of Skywalker. Because, oh, no, the character is moving backwards. He just likes that helmet. And yeah. just, like, come on. Seriously. I mean, it looked cool because they used that yeah. kind of... Uh, there's a word for it, the Japanese technique, where you, you, you break a bit of pottery and you put it back together, but you don't try and hide the joins. The yeah. yeah. It looked cool. But why? Is it just so they could cover the dialogue he had to be forced to say? 
that that as it, as it went along that was kind of like the point at which i wondered if that was the reason is just kind of like it's really easy for us to rewrite and reshoot this if we just have to get him in a booth or like you say you know a sound alike to come in and record it mm. mark hamill will do it he can do anyone's voice yeah oh we have we didn't really talk about that scene but that scene is awful oh it made me feel his one sick. scene like one, like it has the most "fuck you, last Jedi" thing, where it's like that's no way to treat a Jedi's weapon. <laughs> it's just kind of like it's like yeah, oh, fuck, fuck that. But also, like it's he's he's so bad in that mm. scene after and being he's so good so in the good, last Jedi. Yeah, he's like he's completely like that. I'm presuming that's a reshoot because again, like there's no scene otherwise in the movie that takes place on that island other than that scene together. And but, also, like she crashes the tie silencer into the rocks. And do you know how that's? Do you remember how that scene starts? She's angrily throwing logs at it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's on fire. <laughs> like she's just like, oh, this will keep it going. <laughs> just like, but she just stood at this pile of logs. So it was just like, oh, okay. Right. It's not but, lightsaber burning hot yet. <laughs> Just some logs yeah. are needed. But yeah, and then that whole thing is so perfunctory because he gives he he basically reveals information that he apparently knew the whole time anyway. Yeah. Um he then says, Yeah, you need to, you know, sort your life out and you know get back on it. But then she <laughs> flies there to basically say, after spending the whole of the last movie trying to convince him to get off the island and becoming so frustrated with him that he won't, she gets off and does it herself. She flies back to the island and says, I want to do what you did for 30 years and hide on this island, this specific island. I can't think of any others. Um mm. and it's just it just does not make any sense at all and then we get obviously kind of gets the bloody x-wing out of the water that must have stunk um <laughs> like you know and yeah i mean it, that is it's, it's very, i actually personally didn't like the han solo scene um mm. because it just it's very well, pandery yeah it's very pandery but also it doesn't really make sense in Star Wars, I guess. I don't want to be one of those people who's so beholden to the lore of Star Wars, but people are visited by force ghosts, aren't they? Yeah. And he just isn't a force. If they'd have just put blue around him, it would have been... <laughs> yeah, they would have, you'd have been like, oh, he's a force ghost. No one would have questioned that he had the force on. It didn't really matter. But it just he was just so weird. cool. He, yeah, honorary, he gets the honorary chance of being a force yeah, ghost. Yeah. It just, it just felt weird to do it. Like, yeah, that was quite unusual. Um, I really like the design of Palpatine's place where he lived his hideout mm. uh, i can't remember the name of it Ex, 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 exegol or exegol. Something like exegol. exegol yeah exegol yeah yeah that was pretty cool and the sound effects of the sound editing that the, the lightning and stuff was very cool um yeah but yeah it was all a bit, all a bit much the end I've, i found the, the idea that he had a like so like i mentioned before like i i read the aftermath books by chuck wendig where a lot of the emperor stuff is in by the mm. end of the third aftermath book uh, which I forget the name of, like Empire's End, I think it's called. Like it talks about Palpatine's like secret backup fleet, which is in the unknown regions, which is where mm. we find it in in the Rise of Skywalker. But from memory, um, and people might be able to correct me here, like the Emperor being around still in those books is a bit more abstract. It's a bit more right. like you know Sauron's energy. He's like Malice is still like around, but he hasn't like taken kind of corporeal form yet. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Which is such a hackneyed fantasy trope, isn't it? Like Voldemort being a snake or Sauron being a bloody eyeball. <laughs> like <laughs> you, they can't just do that again. But they're 
solution to that problem was we'll just hang his body from a crane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, he's like plugged, plugged into all this like evil juice, the <laughs> pumping evil juice into him. Um, but it also made me laugh that when you meet the emperor for the first time, it's just like Kylo Ren goes in and he doesn't like walk into a big space that opens up and then the emperor's there on like a big throne. He just like goes around the back of a machine. <laughs> yeah. He just stood there. But yeah, like, it, yeah, that felt kind of weird. Um, <laughs> the way they like, so this is the thing kind of, I, I was super open to the emperor being in the film because having read, uh, aftermath, it made a bit more sense to me that that's something that could have happened, but the way they did it was pretty boring. Yeah. I think that's the kind of like my overarching problem with the rise of Skywalker is like, and that's for me. That's kind of like one of the reasons why I I dislike it so much, even compared to, to to the other movies. Is like there's so many bits and pieces where I'm like, that's a real good kernel of an idea there, but like just the execution, the writing, the pacing, it just doesn't really work. And it does feel like a movie that allegedly was massively restructured and reshot over the course of the last year because Disney didn't like what. J.J. Abrams was doing and uh, as evidenced, you know, the, the main evidence for this being that last year there was a big announcement that Matt Smith was going to be in this movie and he was going to be a major character and Matt Smith is not in this movie. <laughs> like, he's not even in it in like a, you know, secretly playing a stormtrooper kind of way. It's like he's not in the movie and the the, the, the word on the street is that he was meant to be playing a character called Son of Mortis, who I think is a character from the Clone Wars series, uh, TV series. And, like, he was going to be the main villain, and then Disney got cold feet, and they were like, uh, could it be Palpatine, please? And they had to kind of, like, just completely reshoot the back half of the movie entirely because they got cold feet and they wanted to have a character, end it with a villain that people knew. And, you know, like you say, like, there was clearly a, a backing, a background of... Palpatine stories that they could draw from and I'm not like opposed to the idea of like them bringing back Palpatine but that Palpatine I think I've said it both ways throughout the mm. entirety of this, this podcast um but it, yeah just the way they did it is like so lazy revealing him at the very start of the movie also feels like a real kind of panicky movies being assembled at the last minute choice as opposed mm -hmm. to being like hey, maybe we surprise people with the return of this major villain. It's like, no, it's everyone's going to know like two seconds into the movie that Palpatine's back. Mm, yeah, it was. Just, yeah, it's just so wrong headed. And like they kind of make it work in the sense that, you know, it's, you know, it, it's not dreadful. It's just really crap. Just bringing mm. back like the idea that you, you literally can't think of anyone else to replace Snoke, who wasn't a particularly interesting character in the first place, is mm. kind of depressing. So I, I don't really know how much I want to lay at Abrams' door because it does seem like you said that there was an awful lot of shenanigans behind the scene scenes, and it does like lend itself very well to the chaos that's been going on at Lucasfilm for quite some time, and it, it just makes you wish that like they just have taken their time with this. Like they, they're, they're, the stuff that's coming out of Lucasfilm now, like I think Kathy Kennedy said, I'm going to announce the new movie with the new director in January after the Rise of Skywalker stuff's died down. 
I'll announce it. But we're going to be moving away from the trilogy format. And we really want to take our time to get things right because we're not going to have like the legacy characters to rely on. So we're pretty much starting from scratch. And you're like, well, could you not have just taken that approach in the first place to these movies? Like if you did mm. a movie every three years, like a, like a, a Skywalker movie every three years rather than every two years, you'd give yourself a fighting chance of making a, something that people love and cherish forever. And that's kind of what Disney do. Like it's the reason that people hold Disney product in their hearts for so long is because they actually make them with care mostly (laughs) um so you will remember them you will you will be a kid and you'll end up watching a lot of shit films but you'll remember the disney ones because they're actually quite good movies and they always seem to at least start from that perspective of being something that you want someone in 20 years to still consume (laughs) because you're trying to you're making money off children that is what you're doing but you're you're getting your investment in early and I really don't know if I was a kid and this was my trilogy. Do you see what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, this was the trilogy that introduced me to Star Wars. I'd be like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> Who's this mm. Palpatine guy? He means nothing to me. Like, and like, it's, it's one thing to say, you know, Skywalker solo and, you know, cause we don't know who Ben Kenobi is at the start of the first Star Wars movie, but we get to know him. So yeah, he like, it doesn't matter. You, you told that these people are kind of like important. And then if you want to go back and investigate, they are, but like, it's just a kind of throwing that curveball is just, and it's not be a very interesting curveball to mix mm. my metaphors a little bit, but yeah, it's just, <laughs> Yeah, it was just so dispiriting to hear that. I was watching it. I was sat next to my friend Katie, and as soon as Kylo said, "Oh, you're Palpatine's granddaughter," all I heard was her just go, "Ugh," yeah. <laughs> just like that. Just that is the the exact sound that I'm making inside. I'm just dying inside of just how uninteresting I now find this whole thing. Yeah, it's just this. I yeah, I wasn't. You know, there's lots of people been kind of like sharing. And, and mean-spiritedly making fun of people being like, you know, really upset by how bad they they, they thought the movie was. But I genuinely was very bummed by it because I really wanted to like, you know, I liked the previous series, the, the previous two movies in this main one, even the, you know, Solo and Rogue One, which I'm not particularly hot on. I still found like, you know, kind of like perfectly fine and watchable. And, you know, I, you know, I get a thrill from from Star Wars. And for this one, it just completely wasn't there and i was just like i was in a real funk about it afterwards being like oh man they like they had like a, a good like background for a story you know what they could have jumped off of and they just made something that was just such a an absolute mess and mm. yeah i think i do think like the we have to release movie every two years thing and um, you know with the non saga stories in between was what ultimately undid them on this one because you really saw with Solo not doing that well and being this kind of like nadir for the franchise in a lot of ways. Not anymore. I think, <laughs> it like, I think that really did spook them in a major way and it really kind of foretold that maybe people were getting a little burnt out on so much Star Wars all the time. Mm. And that if they had stuck to the, the the Lucas schedule of like, hey, you know, one comes out in 77, then 80, 83, then one in 99, 2002, 2005. Like, that's enough time for people to get excited about Star Wars each time, even if you didn't like the previous one. Like, that's enough time for you to kind of, like, really ramp up. Whereas if it's like, oh, this one's coming out 
a year after the previous one, or this one's coming out 18 months after the previous one, which you didn't like. Yeah, it's just not got the same kind of vibe to it. It does, you know, lessen the mystique of what Star Wars, I think, kind of represented and what Disney wanted when they bought it was that sense of the, the magic of Star Wars. And I don't think they've destroyed it. I think, you know, there's still enough residual love and good for it as seen in the success of the Mandalorian and I'm sure whatever they do with the series going forward will be successful but it does feel as if this is the moment where it's like for, for, certainly for me it's like oh this is all this is all corporate now mm-hmm. and it's not like it's not like Disney is uh, sorry it's not like Star Wars was never commercial or exploited into the ground <laughs> which you know that was George Lucas's genius was mm-hmm he kept the rights to the toys from the first one and then was like, cool, I've made, I'm made more money than anyone. I'm going to like have complete control over these movies and of this franchise for the rest of time or until I sell it for a huge amount of money. You know, like that's always been a part of it, but the films themselves always had this kind of real sense that they were the work of people who had like vision or people who had an idea, something they wanted to say. That's true in, the original trilogy i think it's true in the prequel trilogy even though maybe the the ideas were not necessarily expressed that well it's still very clearly the work of someone of one man with a weird fixation <laughs> on diners from the 50s um <laughs> and car culture and like the force awakens kind of felt a little safe and but still was like hugely fun had that russian nostalgia last jedi i like because it also feels like the work of a singular vision and it's like oh this doesn't feel like it's been noted and committed to death this feels distinctive and this to me is like oh this is like the ultimate apotheosis of corporate note driven focus grouped committed to death filmmaking where you take this world that it should be alive and exciting and magical and you just completely boil all of that fun out of it for me and that that that's my main reason in terms of you know my opening statements of why i think it's the worst mm. can we briefly touch on chewy getting his medal off maz that and was how fucking, fucking terrible stupid, like <laughs> so so i like i had to watch this film twice and yeah. um when i like, so I booked the tickets, me and my friends who always go and see the Star Wars movies all together, bunch of fucking nerds, love them to pieces. We always go and see, and we have done from the beginning. My wife always tags along. She loves Star Wars too. But this year it was her Christmas due and she couldn't make it. But she was available the next day. So I was like, right, we'll go twice. I'll go on mm. the opening night and then I'll go the next day. Then obviously I saw it on the first night. Get back. My wife's super excited. She's like, oh, how was it? How was it? I've got to keep a poker face. I've got mm. to be like, oh yeah, it was it was good, yeah. And then we go and see it the next day, and like we get out. She's she's not particularly enjoyed it for the reasons that you know are obvious. The the Palpatine one being her particular. I think she enjoyed it more than uh, you and I did, but the Palpatine mm-hmm. thing was a real problem. She was like, "What did the orange tangerine walnut lady give to <laughs> Chewie?" And I was like, oh, "Fuck's sake." Because she, she came out and said there was just a lot of Star Wars like stuff that just seemed in there for no reason. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, well, when she asked me about the medal, I was like, well, wow, in the first movie, uh, <laughs> I think it might have just been a mistaken costume. <laughs> but Chewie yeah. hasn't got a medal. So why not just spend a bit of time with a character giving him one that makes no sense whatsoever? Why has Maz got it? Like, why <laughs> why is she giving it to him? I know they're supposed to be boyfriend and girlfriend. Like... Yeah. It's so, it's so like, 
uh, given how much they compressed like stuff in there, like if that hadn't have happened, oh god, it just annoys me to think about. It just really, really annoys me. Yeah, Maz, I felt really was done dirty by this movie as well. She's in that same group of like, she's stuck there with Rose and Dominic Monaghan. It's just been like, oh, the people who are around Leia, because we don't really know what to do mm. with them. And Greg Grunberg keeps walking in for some reason, where like, you know, in the first movie, she's this very kind of like fun, lively, eccentric figure who maybe doesn't really you know, factor into the plot that much, but like, Lupita Nyong'o is clearly having a lot of fun playing her. The second, she's barely in it, and you and I talked about this in our episode where, you know, her scene is in that movie is kind of one of the low points just because they're trying to solve a plot problem and a contractual problem at the same time of, like, uh, we kind of need to explain why, why these characters are going a place and we also need to find something for Lupita to do. Mm-hmm. So we'll interrupt her playing Cod or whatever it is that she's doing, um, <laughs> and have her just kind of, like, deliver a bit of exposition. But, you know, she's funny in that scene, and she's lively, and you kind of feel like, oh, yeah, that's the character I know. In this one, she's just constantly, like, solemnly making proclamations mm. and exposition, and you're just kind of like, man, this Louisa Nyong'o was so fun in the previous ones. It really feels as if they gave her nothing to do. They got her in for an afternoon to record this stuff, and they didn't really kind of put much spark into it. It's just like it's just one of those things where, again, like the rush and everything does feel as if they have, they they lose track of who these characters were because they're barreling ahead to both resolve the conflicts that they're setting up in this movie, and you know that are spanning back to you know ideas that George Lucas had in nineteen seventy seven. You mentioned earlier about you know finding out in supplementary materials other than mm. the film what things mean it's been like i think they held off the visual dictionary that pablo hidalgo does and um to kind of keep spoilers out and they've also held off very interestingly the art of the um rise of skywalker book which is normally the art of books which are really really good by the way because they got like a lot of concept art um and a lot of beautiful stuff in there they've held that off to next year Uh, I don't know if that's being a drastically re-edited book with like all this extra stuff that they've obviously put in and all got rid of. But it got revealed today from people reading the dictionary that there's that kind of adds a bit of context to the scene where he sits down next to Janna, the new character. Oh, Lando, uh, we're talking about. Yeah, Lando. Sorry, yeah. Um, Who we sits down next to. Not talked about being in the movie previously. (laughs) It's because he doesn't really add anything. Just my wife said, all he does is laugh. (laughs) <laughs> and I was just like, well, there it kind of is. Like, he sits down next to Jana and says, hey, kid, where are you from? And she's like, I don't know. And then I was like, is he hitting on her? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, no, he can't be hitting on her. He's like way too old to be hitting on her. Then I was like, he's asking her where he's from. Is he trying to work out whether he's fucked someone in that system? <laughs> like, And then it turns out that according to the Visual Dictionary, he had a daughter of a similar age that was abducted by the First Order, and she's a First Order person. And here we are with an incredibly boring thing. And like, are they yeah. trying to are they trying to like backdoor pilot a spin off into a, mm. a two hundred and fifty million dollar movie? What? Yeah, I I thought I didn't think he was hitting on it. I just think that's how Billy D. Williams kind of talks. Like right, he's just okay. there's just a smoothness to him that's hard to kind of erase. But I I did initially think watching it. Oh, is he gonna be like? 
their their father and daughter? Are they going to have like two of the only black characters in Star Wars be related to each other? That seems weird. And when it wasn't explicitly said, I thought, oh, yeah, maybe they're just going to go hang out and have adventures or whatever. So then seeing like, oh no, totally, like she may be his daughter. I just kind of think, Jesus Christ. But the, the 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 fact that that is not factored into the movie at all, that he had a family and his kid was kidnapped, was like one of those real things that made me think, that could add depth to the character if you'd had, like, that's why he's been living on, alone on a planet or, you know, like, he's been hiding for so long that he suffered this terrible trauma, mm. you know, that he thought his war was over and then the war came and found him again. Like, that would be an interesting decision, something to show. Yeah, that was, that was like, that, for me, that so much of the... The, the plot of the movie has only come out because people have been like, oh yeah, all this stuff is kind of in other materials just really points to the fact that it was clearly uh, such a shit show to, you know, being in terms of being conceived and made and that clearly a lot of things ended up on the um, cutting room floor, including as well the whole thing where Finn spends the whole movie saying to Ray, hey, I wanted to tell you something. And because of the tension we've seen before them in the previous movies you think oh he's going to tell her he loves her and like mm -hmm. that's what i thought the whole movie and then it's just dropped and then in the academy screening of it for awards consideration jj abrams announced oh he was going to tell her he was full of sensitive <laughs> which is like i don't know it's just so weird that that was the th that they left in all of those vestiges and then didn't have any of the payoff for it because that would also be a nice moment if he's just kind of like hey, you know, I feel the force as well. And like, they could feel that connection. But, mm. you know, there's, there's so, there's so little room in the movie for, you know, character because there's so much plot. Yeah. There's something I wanted to say about this sequel trilogy as a whole, in that there's so much that is obviously, that leans on nostalgia. But when you do get, dig around into the kind of making of the film, there's so much of it that is, based on or inspired by kind of unused concept art from the original films and unused mm. script ideas that you kind of get the feeling that they essentially built a trilogy around stuff that wasn't good enough in the first place, <laughs> but looks like it's from that time or feels like it's from that time. And hopefully the people who now, you know, have kids and disposable income who remember watching those films when they were young will, you know, go and see it two, three, four times at the cinema by the Blu-rays and, and buy all the toys and all that kind of stuff, which is kind of how it's panned out. But I, I do, I do feel like the whole trilogy has been just kind of using Star Wars as a crutch rather than a blasting off point to tell its own story and its adventure. Because I feel like the, the film doesn't do a very good job of capping off a three-film trilogy, let alone trying to tell a nine-film story, which is, mm. you know pretty bonkers and uh, can we just talk about the end for a second like the last yes. scene because yeah. i walked away from that scene and i was like that was actually a really nice way to have done that she's gone and buried those lightsabers in tatooine there's a really lovely moment where she kind of uses the the bit of scrap to sled down the thing and then she gives her name as ray skywalker and then i was like hang on why did i like that and i was like <laughs> I, they fucking pulled the wool over my eyes the fuckers 
Like they've they've made me think of oh I'm in old Star Wars. Why is she even there? Like, make yeah. like Leia never lived there. Why is she why is she burying Leia's lightsaber? That's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, that must have been just constantly talking to Luke, like peppering him with questions, like where'd you go? Well, I lived on this moisture farm. This is the address, by the way. If <laughs> yeah. you ever want to go there, it's ruins now because my aunt and uncle were burnt to death. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about it. The only time Leia was ever on Tatooine, she was a fucking slug sex slave. <laughs> like, and a baby. Gonna... Oh, oh no, no, she, she went to no, Alderaan. She, no, that's that's true. They they were never on. Uh, they were never on Tatooine together. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah She's not got great a... memories of being there. No. So, like, that's a great example of like, and there's there'll be an awful lot of people, and I personally am very jealous and envious of these people who will see that. And not process it beyond the fact that that's made me feel good about Star Wars, and that's made me, I've been like. And then there's people like me. I'm not going to speak for you here, Ed, who is mm-hmm. you know constantly thinking about like my wider like my my relationship with Star Wars and everything about it, and have a problem with it. And I felt like in the cinema that kind of was like a really apt ending. And then the more I think about it, it's the this kind of it's the really boring thing. Like we'll have a go to Tatooine and look at the twin suns. And mm. we feel I feel like we've already done that in the previous yeah. movie where we got not the same thing, but we got using the iconography of that scene. And I think like you said on our episode of it of the podcast, it's one of uh podcasts when we did the last Jedi episode a few years ago. It is one of the most kind of iconic images from modern mainstream cinema so to take the revered characters out of it and put a no one in that frame and what that represents is really inspiring and then Mm. to basically just repeat that trick but oh like it was a bit more like it was in the original with the same music cue and you know the same framing pretty much and the same it's just it's just mindless aping of something rather than what we saw at the end of the last Jedi, which is using something and then, you know, pouring, you know, new wine into dusty old bottles, as they say. Yeah. I, for me, like as well, I think just within the context of the movie itself and the story that this one movie has been trying to say, I kind of felt like the story that you were telling insofar as the movie has kind of like a coherent point is that, Ray is not defined by her past, or she mm-hmm. is not defined by her lineage. Her lineage. She is a Palpatine, unfortunately. That's canon. Yeah. Um, until it, the movie is made legends in five weeks' time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just rec- record <laughs> decanonization. You know, like she she is a Palpatine. That did not define her. She did not give into that influence. She killed her own grandfather and dusted all of his weird hooded minions who are watching him in a stadium for some reason and she chose that that was not how she was going to define herself at the end of the movie she should say my name's ray and they say what's your family name and she said it's just ray because that's who she is she has defined herself as ray she's not defined by the family that she's from she's not defined by this ancient lineage that she was you know not not part of she is her own like singular thing and I really feel as if that at the end is really just it. The only reason that line is in there is to make sense of the title of mm. it, the, the, the rubbish name of the film, The Rise of Skywalker, for her to just be suddenly like, yeah, I'm a Skywalker. Also, it's really weird that she'd be like, 
I'm just going to take this incredibly famous last name mm-hmm. in this in this world. It's mm-hmm. kind of like if one day I just kind of like said someone said to me, "Hey, what's your name?" Edwin Bowie. It's just kind of like, really? <laughs> yeah. No relation. No relation though. It's mm. like, oh, okay. But you do know. Yes, I know. There's a famous person called David Bowie. Yes. So no, no relation though. And I'm not trying to coast on it. It's just like it's just really yeah. She's really weird. I think she should have still gone back to Tatooine and then the final shot of the movie is her looking off someone's screen and a voice saying, Can I help you? <laughs> and then she... Annie! <laughs> <Ray>! <laughs> yeah, that would like, have been quite that was, something. That was the only family anyone in the Skywalker world really knew. Mm. I There was uh, a fan theory, which this, mm-hmm. and this is part of the problem with today's online film discourse is i read a really interesting piece from a guy called jermaine lucier who writes sometimes for slash film i think he writes for some other sites as well and he was talking about how he and also he did not like this movie (laughs) i should (laughs) like to say that but he was talking about that when the trailer for i think for rise of skywalker came out he was talking about the difficult position that he's in that as soon as something comes out like a trailer or a you know a bit of a plot synopsis or whatever you've then got the factory brain millions of people all talking about it all debating it or whatever and he mm-hmm. said that he had to stop what he was doing because he got caught up in a fan theory that the rise of skywalker referred to the idea that going forward in the star wars universe there is no jedi order but people who are Force-sensitive take on the name Skywalker. He's a Skywalker, Mm. she's a Skywalker, they're Skywalkers, whatever. And Mm. that became a very, very popular fan theory, so much so that he wrote an article saying, I need to stop doing this, (laughs) because (laughs) when it comes out and it's not that, I'm going to be really disappointed. Mm. But I felt like when she said that, I was like, that's actually a pretty cool idea. And that yeah. would make more sense if she says, I'm a Skywalker, not, oh, yeah, I feel like a certain kinship to a grumpy old dickhead I spent like a weekend with on an island with some puffins <laughs> and this woman whose surname isn't even fucking Skywalker. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you know, it's, uh, it, it's yeah, it seems so kind of trite and didn't really work out. But if you think about it like, yes, Broomboy is a Skywalker, Finn is a Skywalker, they all have the Force, they are kind of attuned to this one vibration, there's no such thing as Jedi anymore. Yeah, that's a cool name for it, it makes sense. But as I'm just going to be called, I'm just going to take the name Skywalker, just come up with a better name, Travolta. (laughs) (laughs) Anything, the rise of Travolta. Humperdink, that's a great name. There's not too many Force-wielding Humperdinks. (laughs) For shame. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was that was the ending was something that like did that thing. And I think that's why when I got out, I was like, I kind of enjoyed it, but I was really upset. I'm not upset. That makes me sound like a neckbeard. But like, I was like, I've really bummed out and, and kind of the, the film was changed for me by some of the decisions they made. Um, but there was enough in it that felt like Star Wars. And that's the magic that these films have that they they can get you with what feels like Star Wars. And I said to you before we went on, I listened to a couple of podcasts by kind of Star Wars fan podcasts. And there are people out there who who love all the movies and they love all the spin-offs and they love all the shows and they love all the games because they just love Star Wars. And mm. that's a, a cool place for them to be in because they're huge fans. They just love it all. And like 
I listened to this one the other, like today, and they said, "Oh, you know, my top three films has now changed after Rise of Skywalker." And it was like their top three films was Return of the Jedi, The Phantom Menace, and like The Rise of Skywalker. And I was like, "Well, I mean, that's a place to be in." And <laughs> but I, like, I'm glad you people exist out there. And I was like, "Yeah, this film will work for a lot of people. It'll work for the people who just want to be." kind of entertained and don't want to think too much about it then you know that awful thing that people say to you well it works if you just go and turn your brain off uh, which i've always hated because like you may as well just be fucking lobotomized um it just doesn't make any sense to anyone who wants to stop and think about it but maybe that's the lesson (laughs) we should just stop Mm -hmm. thinking and like let go and just let them take our money off us Mm. no i'm still gonna overthink it yeah yeah because i because I think there's also that that meme that was being shared around, which was you know like someone holding up a piece of paper saying it's a what is it? It's a movie about space wizards for children, mm-hmm. and which is true. That's absolutely true. But I was like, as I was watching, I think it's not even a really good space movie about space wizards <laughs> for children. Yeah. And also, like a lot of the chill, a lot of the, the the choices, the sort of things we talked about over the the, the course of this episode. They don't feel like their choices for children. Mm. <laughs> they're, they're choices to appease man babies, which is yeah. different. Yeah, you know, they're children they're making, in their own way. Yeah, they're making choices for like thirty and forty year olds who are like, you know, to give them that little jolt of nostalgia as they they grimly step towards the grave, you know, or people who were just like just so angry at the last movie that they have to kind of make changes to it, and like that's not really that's not for kids you know mm. like say what you will about like the the prequel movies but like you know phantom menace is unabashedly a movie for kids like that is definitely a space uh, a movie about space wizards for kids the later ones go to some dark places that maybe don't quite work for young children particularly the bits where young children are being chopped up <laughs> um but like you know there there's definitely kind of like elements of a lot of those movies where it's like oh yeah this is like big family entertainment and this one really felt a lot of the time to me like it wasn't really trying to appeal to a big family audience it was just being like uh what what stuff did you like in 1983 how Mm. can i remind you of that yeah hey it's this guy it's wedge and this wedge this guy fucking hates star wars in real life and we managed to get him in for three seconds of filming and say a line which he really 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 didn't commit to great yeah. flying lando <laughs> the new tricks money is is drying up <laughs> yeah and uh his nephew stopped sending in the checks oh that's one thing i did like about the movie the one thing mm. in fact my favorite thing about the movie was when ray is down for the count and she she finally gets to commune with the other jedi from the, the yeah. past it was like genuinely made me feel like this is the kind of fan service i like to hear all those voices even if they're from here, Neeson again. Yep, yep. <laughs> After Cudgelgate, um, to have him <laughs> like <laughs> back in back in the uh, the Star Wars like milieu is nice. But like to hear not only the voices of like you know I don't particularly care for the prequels, but to hear that stuff makes sense. To hear you know Obi Wan Yoda, but then to also hear like Kanan from Rebels, Ahsoka, mm. and then I looked it up. There's like a bunch of other Jedi's that I don't know who they are. They must have been in Clone Wars cartoons or whatever. Like that's actually kind of cool because mm-hmm. like it's fan service in the sense that like these are all characters but it's not like look at this person because it's not super obvious it's not like there's there'll be a lot of people who won't they'll only probably recognize yoda 
um, yeah. from that. But yeah, it was it was. I thought that bit was quite nicely done. Yeah, that that was that was very nicely done. Um, I really liked. Yeah, just like the sound design of that as well, where you could pick out individual voices, but there was also that that real sense of like someone being overwhelmed by their sense of connection to this kind of like millennia of history that is suddenly being uh, funneled through them. But mm. at the same time, where she says, like he says, "I have all the Sith," is that right? And she says, yeah, "I have they all live the in Jedi." The, yeah. Um, that for me was like that and the moment when all the ships show up at the end were the moment when I was just kind of like man Avengers Endgame really fucked things up for this movie because <laughs> those are two moments that are exactly chosen <laughs> one the main character saying something like I am or I have and then dying but then being brought back to life in this one in a mm -hmm. kind of bullshit way and then also like things look hopeless. Oh my god, we're fighting off against all these people who are affiliated. Then suddenly everyone all shows up to help us, and all the old friends are back. And I was just kind of like, you can't do this twice in one year. <laughs> you can't mm. do the exact same story beats twice, and just like not as effectively. Because as as much as you know, I like you know, uh, Billy D. Williams as an actor, and I like him in, as Lando. There's not really that same sort of connection I feel with like a guy who was in two movies. 30 something years ago and you know like when all of the marvel characters that people have known over 20 something movies over the course of a decade all show up at once like it's not really the same sort of feeling mm. i think it'd be really cool when that flotilla of ships kind of turns up that they would cut to like a confused looking mark rylance on his little <laughs> in a little dinghy kind of like paddling <laughs> out there and um, that'd have been pretty cool but there's there's something calling I out wanted... for george yeah yeah george lucas <laughs> yeah um there's something that i just wanted to quickly say that um this week's episode of the mandalorian sorry last week's episode of the mandalorian got moved forward to mm. before the rise of Sk uh, skywalker it was kind of weird like the first i think the first week that it was on they had two episodes out in a week and then since then it's been one a week and then for some reason got moved forward to the day before the um opening night and it's because in that episode of the Mandalorian, uh, a force user, I won't use spoilers, um, heals someone uh, yeah. using the force. And I, we, I didn't really understand why they'd moved the episode of the Mandalorian forward. But then after seeing the rise of Skywalker, I was like, oh, it's so people can't complain about this. They can't. Right. So people can't say, oh, that's never been done before because it had mm -hmm. yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i don't have like too much of a problem with like when she heals the snake which is like a you know re reasonable thing where you know it kind of fills up but like i don't know when she completely fills in a hole in kylo's chest like i don't know it seems it seems like a lot mm. um and yeah, uh, he I dies when he brings her back to life but she just she just like you know takes on the chin yeah she's off i again. think they they should have just ended it with them constantly bringing each other back to life for five <laughs> seconds so they could kiss. Then one of them dies and they bring the other back to life. I didn't that feel was... particularly... Um, how did you feel about the kiss? Because there's a lot of people who are like super into Raylo as a thing. Mm. But like, you know, I've always said, if there is a will-they-won't-they they dynamic, you really need to pay off um, if you're yeah. going to do it. And that needs to be the end of your story. You can't kind of carry it on because uh, it's not as interesting. And they did do that, but I don't didn't feel particularly earned. I didn't get the satisfaction I'd see, like you know, that I thought that I'd get from that. Yeah, it wasn't like a Sam and Diane moment no. <laughs> where it 
it got a smattering of woos from my uh, audience, but not a huge amount. Mm. So, like, I feel like the, the the screening I saw it in was very reserved in a way that none of the other Disney Star Wars movies I've seen have been reserved. Obviously, it's different audience each time. You can't account for everyone. But, like, I remember... Force Awakens, Last Jedi ended with big cheers because mm-hmm. that's something something they do in America. They cheer at the movies. It's very nice. It's very charming. But here there was like a smattering of woos there. There were a bit, couple of laughs here and there. And I did think the movie had some good jokes when it wasn't stepping over itself and ruining them. Because mm-hmm. I think sometimes some of the pacing is like someone makes a joke and then someone keeps talking. It's like you need like half a second for people to laugh. Mm. You can't just kind of step on it. But I did like the joke of when um, Ray lights her lightsaber to kind of get a bit of light. <laughs> and then then Poe kind of like turns on his flashlight and he's holding it the same way. That's a funny gag. Yeah. Um, like the, the kiss got a few woos. I kind of thought like ah, this is one of those things where you think I, I see logically why this has to happen. I don't feel a huge amount of passion in it mm. because the, also like this movie compared to the previous one there was such sexual tension between the two of them in the previous movie and it was really powerful and that really was one of the things that really pe- played into them you know like uh, kylo offering his hand to ray and being like you know will, will you come with me we can do this was there was that not just a sense of attraction of the power and the sense of belonging but you know there was a that you got a sense of a physical attraction a sexual attraction between them and in this one that is it kind of felt a lot limper like it mm. didn't really feel as if you didn't have that same sense of a frisson between them so when they kissed it was like i guess this is paying off the thing from the previous movie but it's not a thing that i felt throughout this other movie throughout this movie because like all of your other interactions of you being angry at each other you would like one of you stabbing the other through the chest and then healing you like it, it, there wasn't really that same sort of sense it, it just kind of felt like oh the kiss happens here because uh, he's about to die <laughs> so mm. they have to kiss and it's probably the first girl he's kissed let's be honest mm, yeah I have to say for all the things that The Last Jedi retcons um, Poe being straight is the most offensive yeah yeah that was just I mean I like to think he's got Lee, he's, he's got a uh, pansexual just interest in everyone like <laughs> who's to say he and Babu Frit haven't had a thing uh, I mean, can we talk about Babu Frick? I feel like Babu Frick has been the unifying force of what people like, but I also feel like he was needlessly put in there to distract people from how bad the film was. Yeah, I think he was undoubtedly the best thing about it. I, I, I always feel bad saying he because it's voiced by Shirley voiced Henderson. By, yeah, but the, I think they do, just, they do say he in the film, right? Okay, fair enough. I think. It's just, I think. It's just... Yeah, it's just one of those those weird things where it's like, I'm really not sure what this is. Maybe it's, you know, this this race mm. just doesn't have gender, but whatever. But um, yeah, I thought every bit with, with him was great. It was really funny. And just every time he showed up, he's like, ah, look at the little guy. Lovely mm. little puppet, this kind of like messing around. Uh, I quite liked, also I quite liked Dio, the new droid. Didn't really serve any purpose, but it had I a liked him function. saying... Kind of. Because he, uh, most... he was the only person who knew where the ship was going, and that was it. That's right. But that's yeah. the only th- the only reason he existed outside of selling toys. Yeah, other than saying hello and nope, nope. So there was some fun with him. But yeah, like Babu Frit, love, love that dude. Yeah. Um. Like, before the film came out, it was said that Jeff Garland is in the movie, and it would be obvious. 
and you know right. all, all us Garlin heads out there. Um, mm-hmm. I did not see him. I wonder if he ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah, I was wondering if maybe he voiced the alien they meet at the start that tells them there's a spy, oh, but maybe not because the yeah. voice sounded familiar, but I couldn't tell you. The problem is when you go and look at the credits later and it's just a load of like alien names, it's just like, I don't know. I don't know who any of these people played. Mm. Um, Carrie Russell I liked uh, as well. Uh, I always enjoyed Carrie Russell. I thought she did an amazing amount of work considering that you only see her eyes in like two scenes. Yeah, but and pretty I, thankless I thought, role as well. Yeah, but I did enjoy her antipathy towards uh, Poe and also their little head nod towards each other at the end. Just kind of like, Save the universe. All right, want to go bang around a bit? Like, <laughs> okay, fair enough. That was quite fun. That was like some of that old Oscar Isaac charm that you know is uh, evident in other parts of the movie. But I think for the large part, because so much of the movie is expositional and people kind of just kind of firing quips at each other, that there wasn't quite that same sort of I don't know sense of sense of fun to him that you sometimes get in in Star Wars. Mm. I'm just thinking actually about now you've said about the guy who gives them the information from the spy in the opening crawl it says the galaxy hears a dispatch from emperor palpatine then we have some scenes that happen then finn mm-hmm. poe and chewie go and get that message from the guy and then they download it and they're like hey palpatine's back so were they just yeah. not were they just not playing fortnite <laughs> because like, everyone knows, according to everyone knows that Palpatine's back because Kylo Ray, Kylo Ren is out there looking for him. Or mm-hmm. does that does that hop back in time? I'm confused by that. Yeah, maybe it's like that's the confirmation they need. Like everyone's, they've heard his podcast as everyone's <laughs> joke. They've heard his appearance on Joe Rogan. He smoked weed. It was crazy. Mm. Really put him in a different light. Like they've 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 heard it, but like they're they're thinking, is this? a hoax is this a sound alike uh is this you know is it greg proops playing around canonically <laughs> uh star star wars all-star greg proops you know like so i think that's them confirming it i guess oh, okay. but yeah yeah it, it is one of those things where you kind of think there's just enough ambiguity that may maybe that was meant to be the point in the movie where they found out that he was back and that it wasn't meant to be in the the crawl slash fortnight hmm that's still crazy. It's still wild that they've been <laughs> Yeah, but also, like, we see that uh, Finn and Poe aren't that good at the chess game, so maybe they just, I think, you know, Fortnite's too much for me. There's mm. too much going on. I can't handle all of the base building and the fighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these skins are expensive. Oh, man, the monetization in Fortnite, the number of credits you have to spend. Mm. I do struggle to understand where, the, you know, the, the, the Star Destroyer's that Palpatine has sashed away. They've mm. got full crews. <laughs> Were they in the ground? Are they zombies? <laughs> <laughs> or what? I don't, I don't understand that. Yeah, because the only time you see one on board is when, like, Richard E. Grant and his guys are on there, but that's all stacked with Imperial stuff. That's just one of those things where it's a cool image mm. of... Palpatine like rising his hands up and suddenly like fuck he's got all these star destroyers but it does there's just like so many questions to it logistically it's like okay I guess his hooded guys um I've, I'm totally stealing a joke from the blank check podcast at this point so I'll credit them but like is it just Snokes <laughs> is it just 
tens of thousands of Snoke clones running it. That would be fun to see. Or, like, then, like, did the First Order guys then show up with double crews? <laughs> are, they, are, they all, are they all stacked full of the kids that have been kidnapped in advance of this? Yeah, it's just like, there's lots, there's lots of world-building problems that I think um, are really just set up by the fact that The Force Awakens really kind of like ran ahead with things and was just kind of like, okay, we've got to get you know into things. We can't worry too much about explaining all of this stuff and who the First Order are and how the Resistance relates to the Republic and everything. So like, there's lots of this stuff that where you just left scratching your head and thinking, I don't know if this all holds together. And like, J.J. Abrams' greatest trick as a as a um filmmaker as a tv producer and everything is that he's really as long as he's moving along fast enough that you don't notice he can sometimes sweep you away and, mm-hmm. and carry you and i feel like this was one of those ones where you're just kind of like man you can't really just be rushing towards something because the thing you're rushing towards is like the end of this big epic saga that's been told <laughs> over decades like you kind of have to sit down and slow things down and make things felt you know and maybe make things make sense you mm. can't just kind of constantly hurl the cool images at each other at us and think that it will you know leave any sort of a mark mm. yeah yeah true that so we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes with shot versus shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well matt what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week anything other than the, <laughs> uh, the rise of Skywalker. But I think, I guess, maybe The Mandalorian, like, I mean, I, I don't want to get too much into the legality of seeing it outside of the United States, Canada, or the Netherlands, um, but it's a, a pretty good show. Um, I do feel like it is doing a lot of what the Lucasfilm stuff now, which is kind of using Star Wars as a bit like a comfort blanket because everything in there is stuff you've seen before. It's just kind of remixed into um something else but it's super enjoyable um and it's got a great score um but yeah it's like a really sparse kind of like spaghetti western take on on the kind of star wars stuff and it's pretty cool i'd recommend it um and obviously baby yoda's in it and that's bloody adorable cool i'm gonna recommend two uh, a, a star wars related thing and a non-star wars related thing but i think that people who have um been maybe disappointed by the Rise of Skywalker might enjoy. The Star Wars related thing is a comedy sketch from 2012 called Gungan Style, which <laughs> is a short sketch by uh, Nick Weiger of the Doughboys podcast and of uh, the creator of maybe my favorite ever bit, recurring bit in podcast history, the Monster Fuck from Comedy Bang Bang. Um, and it's like a, a video that starts off as like, oh, this is like a very lazy parody of Gangnam Style, but it's Jar Jar. And then it morphs into something else. And um, the what the thing it morphs into is incredibly funny to me. And just it's just really, really wonderful. It's only like four minutes long and it really packs a lot of wonderful ideas in. Uh, so, yeah, so that's Gungan Style by Nick Weiger. And, uh, you know, if you're looking out there for a story about a young girl who comes from nowhere to take on a lot of great power and who is following in the legacy of a great hero who's kind of got a testy relationship with her, I'm going to recommend Nickelodeon's The Legend of Korra, which is the sequel series to Avatar The Last Airbender. It's a show that I picked up cheap on Blu-ray ages ago because I remember really loving The Last Airbender when it was on I never got around to it, but after watching The Rise of Skywalker, other than going to see Cats, so as I said in our WhatsApp group, so I could finally feel something again, 
um mm-hmm. i started what i started watching the legend of Korra, and it's just a wonderful bit of epic fun uh storytelling i think uh pr- probably it's i think it's fine to kind of leap into it if people haven't seen um the last airbender it kind of does enough to establish the rules of the world and like all you really need to know is that 70 years earlier there was a character called ang who was very very important but it's a really wonderful story that i think in some ways touches on a lot of similar themes to what this new trilogy of films did but you know with the time and pacing afforded of a tv series so it can explore them a little better uh, and it even has you know in terms of our discussion in this episode a sequence in which the, the main character is that a low ebb and looks like they're done for and suddenly all of the past avatars show up and help them uh, <laughs> kind of uh, in the moment of need which i thought was uh, really funny in our discussion is like oh maybe maybe jj abrams's kids have been watching a lot of nickelodeon um, but yeah, so that's Legend of Korra. Uh, check it out. It's I think it's fairly cheap to buy on Blu-ray these days because everything's fairly cheap to buy on Blu-ray if it's more than a year old. Uh, and I'm pretty sure it's fairly widely available on streaming services. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places. Please rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friend. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different, with our end-of-year coverage, where we're going to be talking about some of the best years uh, best, best years of the film. We're, <laughs> going to be talking, we're going to be talking about some of the best films of the year. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.